Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Episode 3 of 5 of The Elephant in the Bedroom contains references to sex, violence, strong language, and adult themes. Strap in. I um, randomly ended up writing a memoir over the last year, and in doing that I went through some of my diaries Mm. with my one other Iranian friend. And we realised in our diaries that we had this whole big thing where we were pretending to be white to these boys. This is my friend and Green MP Golriz Gadaman, or as the media calls her, the refugee MP. She moved to New Zealand from Iran at the age of nine, and when she was 11 or 12, Golriz and a friend were talking to boys over the phone, pretending to be white. We had all these sort of physical characteristics yeah. that were like blue eyes, blonde hair, because we were like trying to keep track of this lie. <laughs> We'd never sat down and gone, oh, let's be white. We yeah, just assumed yeah. that obviously if you're going to be more desirable, yeah, then that's, that's the, what you're going to do. That's wild. So it's horrific. At that age as well, it was it's like, It's horrific. Yeah. And then we looked at their names and for the first time ever realised they were brown. The people you were calling. Because their surnames were the boys you were calling. and Singh. And we had assumed, because we thought they must be hot yeah. in our little world, yeah. that they were white. And we had assumed that they would want us to be white. I then asked her where she thinks that assumption came from. Probably started here, at least back then, which is the 90s. Yeah. You were just never in a magazine. Like, someone like you is never in a magazine. They're not on a runway, they're not on a TV show. And it's heartbreaking, but it starts early, man. Kia ora, I'm James Rocket. And I'm Chai Ling Huang. And we're two Asian millennial creatives who happen to be best friends. And we've noticed that we share a trend in our dating lives. That's right, we've only ever dated white white people. people. And we're here to find out why. For RNZ, this is The Elephant in the Bedroom. A show undressing sex, love and race. So our last episode took us to a place of us realising our own privilege as Asians here in New Zealand. And, you know, we're looking at where we sit in the New Zealand context and trying to further understand the racial hierarchy that exists here. Right. And we landed on that racial hierarchy influences pretty much everything, including, it seems, our love lives. So today we're asking ourselves, what are the things that actively fuel the idea that some people are more desirable than others? And we know that representation has a big hand in dictating who who is attractive in society, right? Like Gauri said, the most desirable people are often seen in magazines and runways. Yeah, and in Western media, those people historically have mostly been white. Mm. His story was pretty shocking. I mean, kids play characters all the time, right? But it's like... Pretending to be specifically white Mm. to be more attractive to these boys, that feels like something deeper. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I went and got some cold hard facts on just how much media affects us. So the Gina Davis Institute does studies on representation in film and TV. And for example, they found that in 2012, girls' participation in archery competitions doubled. And guess what movies dropped that year? What? The Hunger Games and Brave. Movies that have badass female arches. Oh. 
wild. Yeah. So here's the stat. Seven in ten girls said that Katniss from The Hunger Games and Princess Merida from Brave influenced their decision to take up archery. Oh. Well, that makes sense, right? Especially if like, you're a young person looking up to these characters. And I think this actually adds to what we learned last episode about sexual imprinting, which is something observed in animals, but we can theorize also affects humans, that says, as a child, who you're taught to be attracted to is based on who you are raised by or who's in your surroundings. Yeah, then there's good reason to think that the people the media are selling as the most attractive or cool will influence who you find attractive or cool in real life. And by that token, it could go the opposite way, right? Like, bad representation surely affects who we find hot or not. Yeah, so for every Henry Golding and Crazy Rich Asians, you also get a Mr. Chow from The Hangover. No! And for every Aquafina and, like, Nora from Queens, you get that quiet serial killer Asian girl in Pitch Perfect. (laughs) And all these depictions work towards painting an image of minorities in other people's minds. Yes, they Mm. sure do. Okay, so that's a lot. Where should we begin? Well, uh, Goree's mentioned that she reckons all of this stuff starts early, and I really resonate with that because for me personally, it did start early. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like even in the Philippines. Before you moved to New Zealand? Yeah. Remember when I had I had lots of girls like me, remember? Is this, can you can you verify this? Uh, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> the three cackling hyenas you're listening to roast me are my sisters, Joyce, Janina, and Gisela. I called them to see what they remembered from growing up. Well, back in the Philippines, they encourage you to date someone who has whiter skin. And then, like, you know, when you watch movies or the media, every actor is white. It was just like, superhero was white. One woman was white. Everyone that we were watching every day. And then, you know, you have all these commercials of whitening products. Lakas uh, papaya? Lakas papaya. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the orange one. Music. I'm not gonna lie, I definitely use those whiting lotions, especially when you're 12, 13. Did you actually use it? Yeah. I used it too. Did you? It was just in like the family bathroom. I used it mainly for my armpit. Yes. In the Philippines, oh, you, you need to have like white armpits to be like yeah. Yeah. pretty, and you have to have like white knees as well, yeah. like even the knees, because and then white is associated with being rich and beautiful. Mm. Okay, so I have mixed feelings because it's so absurd that you almost want to laugh. White armpits equals attractive, but the fact that skin whitening soap exists, that's terrifying. Yeah, right? It's scary. And I feel like a lot of Westerners don't know and they're so shocked by it, but it's true. It's out there. And some of that shit has mercury and harmful chemicals that people are just like rubbing on their skin. Mm. Do your sisters still use it now? Thankfully, no. Uh, I think once we moved to New Zealand, we got away from all that marketing and we were around people that actually appreciated a tan. My, my sisters were able to like appreciate their own skin. That's really nice to know. Okay, so something I've heard a lot when I bring this up is that this is the same thing as white people's obsession with getting tans, which points to white people wanting to be brown. But there is a key difference. So tanning comes from wanting to be in fashion or, you know, wanting to look like you've been on holiday or because you think it looks healthy or whatever, not wanting to actually ethnically be brown, which is different to Filipinos wanting lighter skin because of a racial hierarchy that literally says you are inferior because of your ethnicity, which you can't change. Yeah, that's a massive difference. Plus now, if my sisters ever get a dark tan, my parents, they'll still comment on their skin being too dark. Shit, really? What do they say? 
they'll say things like, oh, you're getting dark or like it's ugly and they're all like they'll compare them in a throwaway comment to indigenous people negatively. Yeah, it's not my parents' fault, but shout outs to generational trauma, eh? Holy shit. That's a minefield mm. to be in the middle of that. Yeah. How did it affect you as an adult? Did you ever buy into the skin whitening thing? No, but I am scared that dating exclusively white women is my equivalent of using those soaps. Okay, so talking about representation, we should acknowledge that the landscape is actually changing for the better. That's true. It's on its way. Yeah. We've had a big wave of movies and TV like Black Panther, mm. To All the Boys I'd Loved Before. Fish Off the Boat. The Farewell. I love The Farewell. Yeah, great movie. Um, for me, Reggie, the hot bully from Riverdale being cast <laughs> as Asian, that was like a 10 out of 10 triumph. Oh, man. Also, have you seen The Big Sick? Yes. Strong romantic South Asian lead, which yeah. was cool. Interracial relationship, very funny, very moving. Okay, so it's funny you mentioned The Big Sick because when I spoke to Goree, she had a hot take on that movie. How do you feel about The Big Sick? Problematic. Yes, go on. Fuck. I've been dating this girl. A white girl. It's okay. We hate terrorists. I wonder who that could be. I'm guessing it's a young, single Pakistani woman. This is Zubeda. For your files, your X-Files. That's your favorite show, huh? <laughs> the truth is out there. <laughs> so basically, Gauriz goes on to say that for her, The Big Sick is a story about a man of color wanting to be with a white woman over the plethora of women of color his parents are trying to set him up with. There's one scene that's like gut-wrenching to women of colour where he gets these beautiful pictures of these beautiful Pakistani women and he puts them in a box and he just never, you know, and at one point his uh, white girlfriend discovers this and gets angry and then the scene that's gut-wrenching is he presents her with a jar of ashes of all the pictures of the Pakistani women. (laughs) Presenting it to this white woman to be like, I see, I don't even care about them. If you could fix that movie, what would you change? Um, I would not make it. I don't think it's a necessary film. Part of the problem with why people of colour have experienced prejudice in our everyday lives is that Mm. we've been dehumanised because we aren't presented, our stories are not presented, Mm. in particular by us, as complex human stories. So we're not seen as individuals, we're seen as um, sort of amorphous brown masses. (laughs) Um, So finally, one of us gets to make a film. And he did it again. He did exactly what Mm. normal mainstream media does to us, which is to present us as stereotypes that are not fleshed out. Well, I feel terrible about liking The Big Sick now. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that was her point, though. But in saying that, I mean, I've always seen The Big Sick as a victory for Asian men. Because to see an Asian male lead in a rom-com was like a massive deal. But she saw it as an Asian man rejecting women of color and instead wanting to be with a white ideal, which is a totally valid read of the movie now that I hear her say it. Yeah, totally. But do you think it takes away the victory of having an Asian male in a romantic lead? Um, personally, I don't, I don't think so, because there's such a lack of Asian men, especially South Asian men, depicted as viable romantic partners in the media. But on the flip side, there's also a very real lack of nuanced South Asian women and just women of colour in general in the media. Mm, that's true. So it's kind of like, which issue are you going to prioritise? You know, like, can, can you do both? But I think as well, it's important to note that the movie is actually based on a true story. Like, this is a real-life dude, and he is married to this real lady in real life. Mm. So for me, it's a bit hard, because it's like, 
are we critiquing the movie or, you know, are we policing Kamel and Emily's real-life relationship? <laughs> yeah. The line gets a bit blurry. Yeah. So mainstream media is one aspect of representation that has a huge influence on people, but there's another billion-dollar industry that's just as widespread with their advertising as major Hollywood films. And if we're talking media representation, sex and race, this one is the direct intersection of them all. Is that just a real scientific way for you to say porn? <laughs> like, you re- like suck all the sexy out of it. Hey, shut up. It's what I do best. So from the outside, the sex industry does seem a bit uh, like a wild west, like a, a, an absolute free for all, you know. And by sex industry, I mean you know that includes porn, stripping, camming, like face to face sex work. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I've always had a massive question mark about this because porn is about sex, so it's taboo. It's private. No one will ask you about it. It feels like it's totally separate from our real lives in that way. So you can go ahead and literally distill your type down to keywords and not even think twice about it. Mm. And like, we don't want to yuck anyone's yums, but I can think of so many racist tropes that are just totally common in porn. You know what I mean? Like, oh, here you go. Black dudes have big dicks. Asian women are submissive. Okay, uh, just stop. Blonde, blonde I don't, I don't women need to hear like, them all. <laughs> <laughs> but like, my point is to say that all those tropes are like socially acceptable. People just know that shit, right? Yeah. It carries over. But clearly that's what sells, right? Because it keeps getting made. And, like, those stereotypes would not be okay outside the bedroom. But my question is, are they actually affecting our real lives? Or can the sex industry just get a free pass? So we're heading to K Road, about to meet Demi. Um, So I follow Demi on Twitter for her savage and uh, funny tweets. Um, She also used to be a stripper and is a proud Māori Pacifica creator on OnlyFans. My work is main source of income would be OnlyFans, and that's just me slanging nudes. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask for a, a specific breakdown of what OnlyFans is, but I feel like slanging nudes. Slanging nudes is pretty. That's what I, I have it in my bio. <laughs> There's definitely an art to content creation and making good nudes. Like I can get on there and work hard for a week, yeah. get all these new fans, make sure my subscriptions are up, and um, make bank like that um or i can just chill and the subscriptions are still there yeah so if i do nothing i'll still make a couple k a month um what role does race play in your line of work oh a lot Mm. the me when i was a stripper me and this other girl she was um caribbean and i was like maori samoa and the brown girl so we used to just hustle together when we stripped because it was easier to do it as a duo and be like, yeah, cool, we'll just play this role that we're the ethnic exotic ones. Yeah. It's the white men, bro. It's the fetishizing. It's the fetishizing. Yeah. And they're just like, they're looking at me through the lens of like, I'm a thing. I'm not a human, I'm a brown Polynesian thing. Like, And you kind of have to just roll your eyes at it and then be like, hey, give me your money. Hey, I hated getting called exotic, but it's just part of the game. She's, like, so hyper-aware of playing into those types. Mm. It's, like, it just sounds exhausting. And I can imagine as well that it's even more tiring because, you know, women are already sexualized regardless, right? And to have that on top of it as well is, like, God. Yeah, I can definitely relate to those mental gymnastics. Do you think stereotypes in porn have affected you personally? I mean, yes, it's a few things. So basically when you see East Asian women in porn... 
it's a few different tropes. The submissive Asian girl, the hypersexualized or like extra horny, which I suppose is maybe just porn anyway, or the schoolgirl trope. And personally, I've always really hated it because it's so race-based, which makes it feel extra dehumanizing. And it those stereotypes kind of consolidate all of the shit ones that you get in everyday life. But in porn, it's taken to the extreme. Like, so, for example, the submissive trope can be really violent or non-consensual. Mm. The schoolgirl thing can play around with things that border on pedophilia. So I guess it just reminds me that I'm seen to some people as an object. I'm not saying that as an Asian woman, if you like being submissive in the bedroom, it's a bad thing or you should feel bad about it. The key word is consensual and not assumed. Do you think seeing that version of how Asian women are portrayed in porn has affected your dating life in some way? Yeah, all of those things add up to making me feel really unsafe. Because if it's acceptable to enjoy this stuff in the privacy of your own home, what are the things that are building up inside people that might make them treat me the way that they see Asian women in porn? Mm. Like, how do they see me? And what do they expect of me sexually? guys will say or do things that you're like well that came out of nowhere shit and that's that's happened a couple of times or is that yeah definitely and you're like oh i thought this was going really well and the walls come down mm. and they'll like just say a keyword or like yeah. comment on your appearance and or like try a thing that you like weren't giving the signals for but then you're like oh you just saw that in porn and when something happens like Atlanta, where eight women who worked in Asian spas were killed by a white guy who blames Asian women for his sex addiction, it's a visceral reminder of how dangerous the sexual stereotypes of Asian women are. Yeah, that's, that's pretty scary. I have a question, though. Yeah. Do you think we're fetishizing white people? (laughs) (laughs) You could look at it that way. Yeah, definitely. But you can't fetishize white people in the same way because the context we're talking about is that they are the majority. Yeah. Yeah, white isn't like a porn category that you can look up, you know. They're they're the default. They're the homepage. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that's a good point. Like, when you search Asian in porn, you see, like, zero Asian guys. Do you ever see yourself in porn, James? No, you don't commonly see Asian men in porn, at least in Western porn, because it's not being made. You could say that there's probably no real demand for it, which actually brings us to the flip side of fetishization, sexual rejection. You'll have good nights, but then also the rejection is hard too. Like, and then even when you get rejected by your own people and like not getting as many clients or cut, you know, like not getting booked for many lap dances and stuff because they always go for the white girls. And yeah. dating. Because that, that mimics that too. 100%. Like, dating, like right? yeah, I get really cut up about it when I'm dating someone and then they're like, oh, no, I've started seeing someone else. And then I look and it's some basic Stacey, mm. Sarah. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah. Becky. I'm like, what the fuck, yeah. bro? Like, it makes you feel less than because even your own people don't want to date brown girls. Mm. Yeah. But they want a white girl for home. But, yeah. It's it's very draining of your energy to be constantly fetishized and constantly rejected as well. This is where it comes into real life effects. Mm. 
Like it seems as a woman of color in the sex industry, you're either, as Demi said, fetishized or rejected. You can't just be a person. Mm. And that carries over into the dating world. So obviously I can't ever experience what it's like as a woman of color, but as an Asian guy, I do know what it feels like to be sexually rejected because of my race. How do you mean? I remember once I was comparing Tinder matches with a mate of mine. And I'd say like we're pretty similar level of like attractiveness. And the only difference really is that he was white. And I remember seeing how many more matches he had than me. Like I'm not talking like one or two. I'm talking like four or five times the amount of matches. And he was just scrolling through. And I, and I just remember seeing that and mm. going like, there's something going on here. Like, the, you know, what the hell is this? Yeah. And for those that can't see James, he's attractive. <laughs> yeah. James is hot. <laughs> I mean, I would never, but James is hot. Okay. Thank you. Because and we're no friends, thank you. Okay. not because you're brown. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> ah! Christ. So when that rejection happens not once but time and time again, what effect does that have on you? Uh, it does a real number on your self-esteem. Um, and to think that I could have done that exact same thing to a woman of colour is such a tough pill to swallow. You know, it's like it's like a cycle of rejection. I don't even know what was happening. Yeah, that's really hard. It's like very rigged. So I found someone who has literally written a book on this. Um, she's a sociologist named Dr. Angela Jones. She's based in America and is the author of many books, one being Camming, Money, Power, and Pleasure in the Sex Industry. And just to define camming, uh, it's when someone performs certain activities, often sexual, in front of a webcam for paying viewers. Oh, my God. You'd love to suck the sexy out of stuff. <laughs> So in your research, how does race play a role in the sex work slash camming industry? I focused on how what many sociologists and social scientists call sexual racism shapes the structure of desire in the camming field. So race plays a central role in all sex markets and the interactions between providers and consumers. As an example, when customers select performers based solely on nationality or race, they're motivated by sexual racism. So if someone says they prefer to only date white people and do not find black people attractive, <laughs> this is sexual racism. So this is the first time anyone on the show has labelled it sexual racism. I feel wiped out by that phrase. No one wants to feel that having a certain type of person you're attracted to mm. could actually be racist. Racism looks like many things. It's not just explicit. It's subtle, and we're taught not to see it. Mm -hmm. That's how it stays alive. So cam models' performances and customers' desires draw upon these highly racialized sexual scripts that are created within cultures. For example, Black women often talked about constant requests for race play. And despite the fact that in many cases, like these women have on their profiles, it explicitly says, I do not do race play, right? But yet these customers will continue to ask. Right, and white porn stars would not have that issue. Absolutely. The bodies of people of color are often exoticized fetishized and consumed precisely for their otherness. 
So when individuals draw on racist cultural scripts in their sexual interactions, they reproduce the system of white supremacy and racism. So those racist cultural scripts that Angela was referring to, could they mean the exotic stereotypes that Demi experienced working as a stripper? Yeah, Mm. and they could also lead to discreetly ruling out people as a partner based on their race in real life. Yeah, though I've seen that happen pretty straight up. Like, you know, the whole no Asians or Indians on people's Tinder profiles. Like, I remember Sam from episode one said something. He was like, you wouldn't be able to get away with excluding a race of people so openly in other areas of your life. Like, if you went to a job interview and they were like, to your face, oh, sorry, we only hire white people here. You'd be like, um, what the hell? <laughs> but for some reason, when it comes to dating, you know, oh, it's just my type, you know? Mm-mm. Yeah, and then they'll put that type into their porn search box. And the cycle continues. Mm. Did you, in your research, find out what the effects are on the actual sex workers themselves? The presence of sexual racism in the camming field means that bodies of color have lower exchange values and that women of color in particular earn less than white women for performing the same exact labor. So sexual racism ensures different experiences and different financial outcomes for CAM models based on race and nationality. Finally, you know, sexual racism ensures that white women who overwhelmingly attribute their success to their talent are most likely to be figuratively and literally on top. They're on the top of the actual campsite platforms themselves and among the top searches on porn sites. So racism in algorithms is actually pretty common. In 2020, for example, an online tech paper called Markup found that searching traditionally black names on Google was far more likely to display ads for arrest records associated with those names than searches for traditionally white names. Wow. My point is that those algorithms reflect the power structures already in place, which are largely racist. Yeah, it kind of becomes a feedback loop then, right? Because these businesses reinforce your racist biases when their algorithms give you exactly what you want, then they make money off of it, which then goes back into selling you more of what they want you to buy, which then makes these businesses even more money and so on. So it just goes to show you how racism and capitalism can work hand in hand. And the structure is terrible for sex workers too. Like Mm. we can't forget that at the end of the day, sex work is still a job. And according to Angela's study, you literally earn less money if you're not a cis, able-bodied white woman. And, of course, the same goes for porn. Which is a big reason why women of colour aren't seen as desirable as white women on these platforms. And this has had a flow-on effect on our dating lives as well. Oof. This isn't about judging people and saying, you're a bad person for having a type. All of this cultural imagery that we're increasingly so inundated by, right, like, shapes our perceptions of perceived attractiveness. These ideas that thin, able-bodied, cisgender, white women have the most erotic capital, that didn't just happen magically, right? Like, they're not physiological, right? Like, institutionalized white supremacy shapes those views. In this case, sexual racism is so normalized and pervasive that to many people, it all seems legitimate to disqualify potential partners because of their race. kind of sitting in this feeling of like 
nothing is sacred anymore. What do you mean? Well, we've always known that the media is rotting our brains and feeding us these subliminal trends. I mean, I definitely wear and watch and buy things that are marketed to me as something that will make me cool. So it's not like super surprising that capitalism profits off shaping who people are attracted to. But when you add race into the mix, it just makes it feel so much more gross. Yeah, and like it's got a name now, right? Mm. Sexual racism. And to think that it's directly affecting our own views and biases and dating lives kind of makes you feel a little powerless, eh? Yeah, exactly. I feel frustrated because in the back of my mind, I thought that maybe love or attraction could be something that sits outside those things. Mm. But it doesn't. For any individual to admit that they have racial biases or to dare call themselves racist in any type of way is so taboo and produces a level of uncomfortability that a lot of people may not be willing to wade through. I don't think that this is just a matter of these kind of external entities or porn sites doing better. I think as people, we also need to do better, right? What do we do with this horrible information? It's hard because there's no, like, tangible measure of success for this. Yeah, like, there's no, like, oh, one moment where you're like, okay, fix that, you know? Like, that's not how it works. Well, actually, something tangible is... I can see where you're going with this already. (laughs) We could break up with our white partners. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there because today, Chai Ling, we actually learned that we we shouldn't blame the individual. It's not the individual's fault, it's the system's fault. Yeah, but you still want to undo your bias, right? So... So, scientifically, how can you prove if you've broken your bias if you're still with Esther? You, I mean, you're monogamous. Yeah. So for you, the sign that you've broken your bias is to date brown women. Okay, then. So by that logic, you should have to break up with Hayden as well. Uh, well, I'm actually non-monogamous, so... Um, so your bias is actually long-term relationships, though. So your long-term yeah. partner is still white. Ergo, to break your bias, you still have to break up with Hayden as well. Okay, wait, okay, wait. <laughs> so this all might be a moot point anyway because we don't even know... What do you mean? ...if we can erase our bias. Sure. Like, I might theoretically break up with Hayden tomorrow, right? And you assume because I've learned some stuff, I'm going to change my dating habits. But what if that's not even the case? Like, breaking up with Hayden doesn't mean breaking up with my bias necessarily. Have you ever felt like you've been judged in our relationship? By other people? Hmm. Uh, not directly, Mm. but Mm. I think that when I talk to people about my boyfriend and they haven't met you, I'm pretty sure 100% guarantee that they think that I'm talking about a white guy. I never (laughs) mention that you're like Filipino, unless it's relevant, but my, you know, often I just will talk to you, refer to you as my partner. And so when people meet you... I'm pretty sure most people are like, oh, uh, wasn't okay. expecting yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Because also your name is James. Yeah. Sometimes, like, when I'm with your family or whatever, we go to, like, a Filipino or an Asian restaurant and I'm, like, the only white person. I, mm. I do often wonder if, like, other people or maybe your relatives are like, oh, here we go, another white girl. Mm. Well, I guess the problem is, like, oh, yeah, I'll, like date a person of colour, but I won't settle down with a person of colour. Why not? 
Well, I don't know. I, that's what we're trying to figure out. Like, I haven't been actively choosing that, or so I thought. What is strange about this whole discussion is that there is an expectation that I feel that I've probably put on myself that as a white person, I shouldn't have an opinion about this. The problem has been created by the system of white supremacy and largely white patriarchy. So as a member of the demographic who is associated with that, I don't feel like I should have an opinion on it. I shouldn't try to sway you one way or the other. I just want you to say you don't want to break up with me. Bedroom was made for RNZ with funding from New Zealand On Air. The show was written and hosted by us, James Roque and Chai Ling Huang. Our producers are Ruby Rehana Wilson and Kelly Gilbert. The show was executive produced by Notable Pictures, Julia Parnell, Brett Wilkie, Ewan Atkinson and Proudly Asian Theatre. Post-production by Matt and Ricky at Evoke Audio. Nikita Tubrine did our theme song with additional music by Tom Dennison. Special thanks to everyone who spoke to us for this episode. Golrees, my sisters, Gisela, Janina and Joyce, Demi and Dr. Angela Jones. And thanks to the folks at RNZ, Megan Whelan, Tim Watkin and Tim Burnell. And thank you for listening. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.